BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. You know, it's interesting that about half of our society today is living in the post-COVID age, and the other half, sort of the elites, the political class, are clinging to the crisis and uh, using it as a form of control, that fear. And wasn't it interesting a couple of months ago when uh, President Biden came out on 60 Minutes and he said, uh, the pandemic is over. And immediately all the minions run out and say, don't mind that man behind the curtain. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, of course, the pandemic is still here. Of course, you all need to be afraid. It really is quite interesting. But today I'd like to uh, welcome to our show Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He is a patriot. He is an incredibly courageous individual, a psychiatrist, an author, uh, bioethics fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He received his undergraduate degree from Notre Dame, his uh, MD from Georgetown, completed his residency at the University of California and Irvine, was for many years professor of psychiatry at UCI School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health. And he's the author of a brand new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Thank you, Dr. Carson. It's great to be with you. I appreciate that kind introduction. And, uh, you know, I'd like to sort of get started uh, talking about your new book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what what is the biomedical security state? And why did you write this book? So I wrote the book to make sense out of what happened to me and what happened really to the entire world to all of us over the last three years. And what I realized as I was digging into this question was that I had to go beyond just the specific COVID policies. I, I had the sense that the policies didn't make sense from a public health perspective, whether it was school closures and lockdowns, uh, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. But it wasn't clear, um, given the fact that these did a lot of collateral damage and didn't advance their public health aims, it wasn't clear 
why are public health authorities uh, not only continued these for prolonged periods of time, but even even today continue to defend them uh, for the most part. And what I realized is I had to sort of Google Earth up and look at the broader uh, economic, social, political context to understand where these interventions came from and whose interests they actually served. So the biomedical, what I call the biomedical security state is the kind of unholy welding of three different elements. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I I talk about what I mean by a militarized public health uh, in more detail in the book. The second element is digital technologies of surveillance and control. The iPhone was invented in 2007. So this is the first pandemic of, you could say, the digital age. When we have these technologies available to monitor and nudge, and in some cases control people's behavior on a very micro level. So think of the vaccine passport system that was rolled out in many jurisdictions around the world, having to show a QR code demonstrating that I I have done what the public health authorities told me to do, or what private entities like the employer that I happen to work for told me to do, including injecting a novel vaccine into my body that I may or may not have wanted, may or may not have needed, given my individualized risk profile. And I've got to I've got to demonstrate this sort of good behavior report just to engage in social life and to uh, reclaim my basic civil liberties. You know, getting on a plane, getting on a train, going to a restaurant, getting back into my own country of origin. Uh, If you would have told someone in 2018 that we would be doing this on a mass scale, I think most people would have looked at you like you were crazy, you know. Freedom-loving Americans would never accept this this level of surveillance and control. So you have this militarized public health apparatus, digital technologies of surveillance and control, and all of this is backed up by the police powers of the state. Those are the three elements of the biomedical security state in uh, in this new abnormal. You mentioned, uh, President Biden's announcement that the pandemic is over on 60 Minutes, which is, of course, true. It's been over for quite some time. But then why did his why did his advisors panic when he said that and say, no, 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 it's that's not true? Well, you would think it would be politically advantageous coming into the midterms for the president to announce that the pandemic is over. You know, all all the things that that I did uh, during my first couple of years have gotten a handle on this problem and we're through the worst of it that That seems like it would be a positive message for the American people. But the reason his advisors panicked is that they knew, okay, if the pandemic is over, then the federal declared state of emergency needs to be sundowned. The day after, the first business day after the midterm elections, the secretary of HHS, Javier Becerra, a lawyer with no public health training or experience, renewed the state of emergency with the president's endorsement. And in fact, The state of emergency has been renewed every 90 days to almost no media attention for the better part of the last three years. Now, why is that important? All of those specific policies that I mentioned, the mask mandates, all of these uh, authoritarian measures that we saw over the last three years, those were made possible by this legal mechanism of a declared state of emergency, during which The president, the executive, gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers 
that he wouldn't otherwise have, that he can delegate to unelected uh, unelected officials and bureaucrats. And of course, those are powers that he would have to relinquish once the state of emergency is ended. This legal mechanism also operates at the state level. So in my home state of California, we're still operating under a statewide uh, declaration of emergency. And the governor and his appointees gain additional powers during this declared state of emergency. And so Governor Newsom is likewise reluctant to relinquish these powers, even though clearly there is no public health justification for an emergency any longer. Yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing how they confiscated uh, yeah. our freedoms. Uh, and it seems legitimate. It seems like something that is for everybody's benefit. But really, when you take a macroscopic look, uh, maybe it's a lot more threatening than we think it is. But in the prologue of your book, uh, you know, you talk about Nuremberg in 1947. Uh, and you call it a cautionary tale, which it certainly seems to be. Interestingly enough, uh, the Nazis were very interested in eugenics. That's right. And uh, we've had some experience with that in this country, too, with uh, Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. That's in exactly fact, she right. was a hero yeah. to the Nazis. What do you think about uh, eugenics and the Nazis? Yeah. So I, I, the reason I begin in the prologue with the story of 20th century eugenics is, well, there's several reasons. First of all, when you say the word eugenics, most Americans think only of Nazi Germany. And of course, the Nazis and the Third Reich took the eugenics ideology to its logical conclusion. But eugenics didn't start there. It started in Great Britain and the United States in the early 20th century. And in the early 20th century, 27 states adopted laws that permitted the involuntary sterilization of people deemed unfit to reproduce. Mentally ill people, physically disabled people, even people who were just at the bottom of the socioeconomic strata and, you know, considered to have a predisposition to criminality or, you know, other undesirable traits. So 60,000 people were involuntarily sterilized in the United States under these laws, which continued in some cases, the last of these laws was only reversed in the 1970s. So it continued for a very long time in this country. And Hitler looked specifically to these laws to craft his own sterilization laws in Germany. They took it, they scaled it up. So we had 60,000 for sterilizations, they had about 350,000. And then they took the next step of involuntary euthanasia. Uh, but they were looking to the United States for uh, direction on this, on, on doing this in a way that was that was at least legal under the, under the laws of the state. And then after World War II, eugenics got a bad name because of course we saw the atrocities that were committed on the death camp prisoners by Nazi physicians. And the world rightly condemned that. In fact, 12 of those physicians were tried at Nuremberg, and half of those received the death penalty for crimes against humanity. And, and the key document to come out of that whole process was, of course, the Nuremberg Code, which many of our listeners have probably heard of. Most have probably not read. I encourage people actually to go read the Nuremberg Code. You can find it online. It's only a page or two long. It's a very short document. But the first principle in that document is the principle of informed consent, this bulwark that says you cannot 
experiment on a human being, and you cannot intervene medically on a human being, being on a competent adult, unless they give you permission. So competent adults have the right to make medical decisions, have a right to decide whether they want to enroll in a human subject's trial. And they have the right to make that decision on behalf of their children who cannot consent. Well, during the pandemic, this principle of informed consent was tossed overboard, basically. Because we had this crisis, people thought, well, the normal rules should not apply. But of course, those kinds of rules are most necessary precisely in a crisis, precisely during wartime or during an emergency when we're most tempted to do shortcuts around them. So in my own case, I lost my job at the University of California, where I was not only a professor in the School of Medicine, but I directed their medical ethics program at UCI. I lost my job for trying to stand up for this principle of informed consent. When vaccine mandates were rolled out, I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical. And I also filed a case in federal court, which, by the way, is still in federal court at the appellate level, challenging the university's vaccine mandate on behalf of people like me who had natural immunity or infection-induced immunity following uh, recovery from COVID infection. And the university uh, ended up shortly thereafter firing me for alleged noncompliance with that with that policy. But I believed it was important to stand up for that principle because without it, medical research is certainly lost. And the practice of medicine itself is very severely compromised. This was the central principle of 20th century ethics. So, so vitally important. Uh, you know, thank you very much for being willing to stand up. You know, you cannot be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave. That's right. And, uh, you know, you, along with a number of people, uh, were punished for standing up for what this country actually is founded on, some of our founding principles of liberty. And, uh, you know, I thought it was very interesting that uh, early on, it's only been recently that they've acknowledged natural immunity. Before, yeah. it's natural immunity. What's that? We never <laughs> heard of that. <laughs> they've known about that since uh, World War II and smallpox. That's uh, right. We'll be right back with more Common Sense after the break. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're back with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Why do you think they were so reluctant to acknowledge natural immunity? Well, I quipped on Twitter that um, the CDC would acknowledge natural immunity when someone figured out how to monetize it. So I, I think the first thing to realize is in the first year, the vaccines were a $100 billion industry. And at the time when I filed the lawsuit, the studies were showing that 50% of Americans had natural immunity. Now that number is pushing 90%. Most Americans vaccinated or unvaccinated have gotten COVID, 
Okay. So take $100 billion and cut that number in half. That's a lot of money at stake. And that money buys a lot of media influence. That money buys a lot of influence among public health bureaucrats, where we have a kind of revolving door between, let's say, the FDA and the industry that it's meant to regulate. But the other issue at play, I think, especially with the CDC, is the CDC had doubled down on these policies that were supposed to stop the spread of COVID, right? Remember back to 2020 before we had the vaccines, we had school closures, we had lockdowns, we had mask mandates, we had plastic barriers, we had scrubbing of surfaces, all of these things that were supposed to prevent people from getting COVID. And then 2021, we realized, no, half the country still has had COVID. I think the CDC would have seen that as would have seen acknowledging natural immunity as an admission of policy uh, failure, because the obvious next question is, okay, how many people have it? And that question would, would then draw people's attention to the fact that these measures, in fact, were not successful at stopping the spread of COVID. And even today, the, the vaccines, unfortunately, were not sterilizing. They were not successful at stopping the spread of COVID. And, you know, Debatably, they they gave some short term protection against, you know, more severe illness and so forth, Uh, but they didn't actually achieve the public health purpose of providing robust immunity uh, that would prevent people from getting and spreading the virus. And of course, if you acknowledge the validity of natural immunity, you can't uh, legitimately insist that everybody get the jab. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's that's the third reason they would have to walk back those mandate policies. Well, you know, the those who want to exercise control frequently talk about the greater good and that uh, sometimes we have to do things and not be so concerned about the individual. Doesn't doesn't that seem like a direct uh, opposition to some of the concepts involved in the creation of this nation? Yeah, in terms of individual freedoms, that's absolutely right. That that is absolutely right because if you look at the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights is not aiming at a supposed greater good, which of course requires that we would have a crystal ball and we could see all of the intended and unintended consequences of steamrolling people's liberties. We don't have a crystal ball. We cannot reliably predict the future. And so in the absence of that, you know, we have to have an understanding that there are certain things that you just don't do. There are certain liberties that you should just never give up because the proposed justification for uh, the, the abridgment, let's say, of free speech or freedom of association is always going to be some somebody's notion of the greater good. Of course, it's justified in this circumstance, you know, because otherwise something bad is going to happen or some some good won't be achieved. Uh, But, you know, every time we relinquish those rights, if you anyone with a sense of history will realize that censorship never works out well. (laughs) It always leads us to problematic places. And in fact, Science and censorship are totally incompatible. Uh, Good science, uh, as opposed to scientism, a kind of ideology. Good science is characterized, as you know, by conjecture and refutation and hypothesis and testing and an ongoing debate, ongoing open-ended 
debate and openness to new information and new data, fixating, trying to fixate in law or policy, some current scientific consensus as though it's never going to change and it's unassailable and cannot be challenged. That spells the end of uh, scientific inquiry and the end of uh, biomedical uh, science uh, in terms of, you know, making progress and learning more. Uh, so, yeah, the, the this kind of crass utilitarian ethic that elites think that they um, that they know where things ought to be going and they can just steer the masses in that direction, even if that means steamrolling their rights. Um, anyone with a basic sense of history will understand that that is a fool's errand and that that is a very, very dangerous proposition. Well, you know, it's interesting that so many physicians who, who actually know what you just said are like sheeple and just, uh, you know, give up and do whatever they're told to do. And, you know, completely ignoring the fact that we have an excellent medical system in this country. Yeah. And uh, we know that everybody's situation is a little bit different. Why wouldn't we just let people work with their medical system who knows what their medical issues are uh, rather than a one size fits all method, which in many cases causes a lot of problems? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, at various points during the pandemic, I have to admit, Dr. Carson, there were times where I felt ashamed of my own profession and of the behavior of my colleagues and of their passivity in terms of allowing elected and unelected bureaucrats to dictate to them what they do in the consulting room. And so how do we account for for the behavior of physicians, I, you know, a generation ago, 80% of physicians were in private practice where they could exercise a lot of autonomy and 20% worked for some large healthcare system or, you know, conglomerate. Today, those numbers are reversed. So four out of five physicians works for a large healthcare system where hospital administrators or system-wide administrators are making again, one-size-fits-all policies that everyone has to fall in line and obey. And during the pandemic, those policies usually came from CDC recommendations, whether those recommendations were sound or not. And so, the, you know, the threat of losing one's job, the threat of um, being sanctioned by oftentimes by people who don't have medical degrees, hospital administrators very often are trained in finance and business and management and not necessarily in medicine. Uh, that I think cowed a lot of physicians into silence. The, the other factor, especially at academic medical centers, is uh, the fact that medical schools and academic medical schools rely for their existence on NIH funding. Right. And it, it's impossible as a medical researcher to advance in your career without getting NIH grants, which fund 80 percent of biomedical research in this country. There are universities that receive half a billion dollars a year in federal funding. And a huge chunk of that comes from grants from the NIH. Well, if you look at how the NIH functions, there's a small cabal of decision makers that sort of dictate what research gets funded. You know, including Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins 
And if these guys are getting on TV, making policy recommendations, which is totally incompatible with their role of funding biomedical research, then primary investigators and, and the people leading research studies at various academic medical centers are going to be very reluctant to say or do anything that would challenge the NIH's you know, preferred position on any of these pandemic policies, because they know that uh, retaliation may come in the form of no more money for you. And so they're going to have they're going to have their dean leaning on them to you know, be quiet and don't say anything because you may compromise our funding. So this is a real problem with the way in which medical research has become excessively centralized and uh, too much power has been placed in the hands of too few people to basically control uh, primary investigators and researchers around the country by controlling the purse strings. Absolutely. And even when uh, when data is used, sometimes it's used inappropriately. Um, you look at something like the VIRS data. Uh, first of all, you don't hear a whole lot about the fact that the number of complications associated with uh, these vaccines is much greater than any other vaccines we've ever utilized. That's right. You know, it, it seems a little disingenuous not to let people know that and to hide those kinds of things. But what's interesting to me, particularly as a pediatric neurosurgeon throughout my career, is the recommendations that children, recently the CDC has said that children uh, should be vaccinated. You should add that to the recommended list of vaccination. When the data shows us that the chances of a child having severe complication or morbidity or mortality is 0.025%. I mean, that's approaching zero. Yeah. Uh, in a situation where you don't even know what the long-term risks are. We don't know what the long-term implications of mRNA technology is. So why would you trade almost zero risk for unknown long-term risk? That is exactly right. I think one of the most egregious violations of medical ethics uh, occurred when FDA approved and CDC recommended these vaccines for children. So that infinitesimally small risk that COVID poses to children, which is as close to zero as you can get in medicine, you know, is, is actually even smaller if, if you qualify that by saying healthy children. So the small handful of children that have had trouble with COVID were very severely ill with comorbidities. So it, it is it is entirely accurate to say healthy children are not at risk from COVID. You've got a child with a bunch of medical complications. That may be a different story. But so there's no reason to expose them to any degree of risk from a vaccine. And we know these vaccines have risk. We can argue about the magnitude of the risk, but that we, we know that there is some risk with these vaccines without a doubt. And it's just totally unconscionable that we would do this to healthy children. And then there then there are those who say, well, I understand all that, but we should vaccinate the children so that we protect the elderly people who they come in contact with. <laughs> okay, so the, per yeah, the person who says that, yeah, stop and think about this. The person who said that is basically proposing that we put children at an enhanced degree of risk in order to protect adults. A healthy society, in a healthy society, Adults make sacrifices and put themselves at risk to protect children. 
We do not use children as shields to protect adults. So this is completely upside down. It also happens not to make uh, medical sense because if you look at the data on COVID spread in schools, almost always when there's uh, contagion in schools, it's going from teachers to children, not from children to teachers. So not only do children not really get sick from COVID, uh, but they also don't spread it at high numbers. Uh, so the, the children already pose the lowest risk to adults of anyone that that adult is going to encounter. So putting them in harm's way in order to get some theoretical unproven benefit, there's no there's no evidence that this actually does protect adults. Um, Absolutely. Again, it just makes no medical sense. And it's certainly not something that a decent, sane society would do from an ethical standpoint. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question. Uh, and that is, you know, the mental health implications to our yeah. children. You know, you stop and think about a, a young child. First of all, in many cases, we had them in mask for a long time. So they don't get to see facial expressions and correlate those with what people are saying. That's an important part of sociological development. That's right. Then they're told that they may be transmitting some horrible disease that will kill their grandmother, even though they don't feel bad at all. And grandmothers do get older and they do die. Now you got some kid feeling guilty about that. And then you're isolating them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what does that do to a person's mental health? So we're already seeing studies coming out on the cognitive and emotional and social development of children uh, in terms of the harms by, as you mentioned, by masks, by school closures and isolation. In my own clinical practice as a psychiatrist, I've seen children develop germ phobia, OCD, not surprisingly, very, very high levels of anxiety among children and adolescents. And during the initial lockdowns, we actually had some data from the CDC that, again, received almost no media attention. So in October of 2020, I published a piece called The Other Pandemic, where I was trying to draw people's attention to the mental health crisis. I have a section in the book, uh, In the New Abnormal, where I talk about this as well. Uh, but basically, during the summer of 2020, after several months of lockdowns, we saw evidence that depressive disorders had tripled, that anxiety disorders had quadrupled. We already had a crisis of uh, what sociologists call deaths of despair, deaths by suicide, alcohol-related illnesses, and drug overdose. We had that prior to the pandemic. You know, most people are familiar with the opioid crisis that uh, was on our radar screen in 2015, 2016. Uh, well, we took gasoline and poured gasoline on that fire during the lockdowns. So opioid deaths had gone from less than 20,000 or drug overdose deaths in total, less than 20,000 in the year 2000, up to 70,000 by 2018. During the pandemic, that 70,000 leaped up 30% to 100,000. So those additional 30,000 deaths or those total 100,000 deaths were almost never reported during uh, during the pandemic when all the focus was on COVID and no one was paying attention to or drawing attention to the collateral damage of these policies. The, the most worrisome trend that we saw in terms of mental health is in the summer of 2020, the CDC's own study 
showed that 11% of Americans had seriously considered suicide, not in their lifetimes, but sometime in the last 30 days during the month of June. And among college-age students, 18 to 24-year-old, that number was 24%. So one in four college students in the summer of 2020 had seriously contemplated suicide sometime in the last 30 days. This is a this is a tragic number for a population that, again, is at very low risk of COVID. And instead of taking a focused protection approach where we did more to protect the elderly and severely ill people who were at risk from COVID and allowing younger people to live their lives. Instead, we took, as you said, this one size fits all uh, approach to dealing with the pandemic that did enormous damage that we continue to ignore to this day, the, the the worst moment in the pandemic, Dr. Carson came for me in uh, in November of uh, November of 2020. Uh, no, November of 2021, when I lost a, a friend, a, a young man who was best friends with my 17 year old son. This is a kid I'd known basically since he was born. After prolonged school closures and social isolation, he ended up taking his own his own life. And so, you know, these numbers that I'm throwing out are not just statistics, but behind every one of those tragic deaths by overdose or suicide, there is a, there is a family that is absolutely devastated. There's a community that's absolutely devastated. So these harms, these mental health harms disproportionately impacted young people. And I think sad to say we're, we're going to be feeling the effects of school closures and lockdowns on the younger generation for decades. I mean, absolutely. You know, this is only the beginning. When you when you harm people's development in that way, that has very significant downstream downstream consequences for for their their futures and for their entire life potentially. Absolutely, I think it touches all of us. And you know, just a few weeks ago, a very close friend of mine lost the son for the same reason and uh you know somehow we're going to have to get a get a grip on this and bring yeah. back logic and common sense you're talking about our kids and what the pressures that they feel now they're being confused about their gender too i mean can you imagine being a kid growing I, up in i today's cannot world? it it is it is a hostile world right now for children and and the public education system is is a is a denaturing um environment for young children uh, that that's the best <laughs> word that i could think of for it i, I mean it's 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 so irres- it's so irresponsible what we've done to the educational system and what we've done in terms of a society in term in terms of uh, not supporting children's healthy development toward, uh, you know, Absolutely. responsible adulthood. So, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, a to- yeah. that's, a, that's a whole topic probably for another is. conversation, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Well, you know, we will, we will never make it unless there are individuals like yourself who are willing to stand up. And I want to reiterate uh, my appreciation to you for what you do. And we'll be right back with more Common Sense after the break.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're back with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, a patriot and an incredibly courageous American. You know, doctor, I get a lot of emails from young students who are in medical school or interested in going to medical school. And uh, they want to know, is it a good career for people these days? Uh, I I do wonder. And uh, I'd also like to know your thoughts on what happened a couple of months ago at the University of Michigan at their white coat ceremony when half the students walked out because yeah. the keynote address was given by somebody who was pro-life. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for raising this question of medical education and medicine as a career. Um, since I left the university, I've been able to recreate a lot of what I was doing there. I I've been able to set up a private practice. I'm attached to you know some independent think tanks now and doing my research and my public health uh, work and my policy work. But the one thing that I, I truly miss is the teaching and supervision that I was doing at the university. Again, 15 years there. I, I taught the required medical ethics course to the students. I was a director for some time of the psychiatry clerkship. So when I was fired, I, actually, I was the only faculty member in the entire School of Medicine who directed courses across all four years of the curriculum. So it was a great privilege to be deeply involved in medical education and to get to know all of the medical students um, and, and some of them, you know, in, in a more sort of close mentoring relationship and watch them progress through their entire four years. And I have to say, I'm very concerned and very alarmed by what has happened to medical education and the acceleration of this process in the last few years. This, this sort of a shorthand for this would be, you know, that medical schools have gone woke. But if if we see what is actually meant by that, and we dig into the specifics, we see the ways in which uh, medical education has pivoted into a climate in which ideological conformity is enforced, in which indoctrination with particular ideologies is not just pushed, but almost sort of required of of students. And a kind of, it it seems there's a training for a kind of mindless obedience. And there's, there's an effort to instrumentalize medicine for other purposes. The practice of medicine is an end in itself, healing of illness and disease. And treating patients is more than a big enough job for (laughs) medical students. We don't have to also turn them into, you know, people that use their authority and their prestige in medicine to advance other social and political goals. That's, that's, that's not the job of physicians qua physicians. Sure. You, you know, you're a citizen, so get involved in politics, get involved in social advocacy. Um, but don't uh, don't don the mantle of the profession and pretend to speak f- on behalf of all physicians 
to advance your your aims. So this is a very irresponsible kind of weaponization of medicine. And it it draw it draws there, there's too much to teach medical students in four years. And so we're drawing their attention away from really essential things in terms of learning the art and the science of medicine when medical schools become these ideological factories. And and so you know five years ago if a student ask me, should I go into medicine? I would, I would tell them, look, it's hard. It's for everyone, but it's a wonderful career. And I can't imagine, you know, doing anything else. And, you know, if you're, if you're called to it and you're suited for it, uh, absolutely. I would encourage you to do it. Honestly, today, I, I don't know what my answer would be to that question. I would, I would be more hesitant to, to kind of cheerlead for that. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that breaks my heart, actually, because I've I've spent my entire career mentoring and teaching and supervising medical students and, and residents. You know, that was that was my daily bread uh, in terms of my professional work. And to be at a point where, um, you know, I would be hesitant to encourage people to go into medicine uh, is worrisome. It's also worrisome for patients because you want the best people, right? <laughs> the best potential applicants uh, choosing this career and becoming becoming physicians because that that will lead to better medical care. So this is not good. This is not good for anyone. It's not, and it's not just about physicians. It's ultimately it's about patients because you know obviously our whole profession exists for the sake of uh, of treating illness. And it's about something that's occurring in our entire society because yeah. look at uh, look at all the controversy that Elon Musk has uh, caused by saying, "If you're going to work here, you got to work hard." <laughs> what work hard? Come to come, come to work. Get dressed. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, you know, multiply that times ten when you're talking about a career in medicine, yeah. because uh, you know there's more expected of you. And we've we've gone from a, a my patient to my shift mentality. Yeah. And uh, I, I I feel sorry for patients uh, under that circumstance, but there still are many people in the medical profession who feel a responsibility toward patients and not toward a shift. And so you know I don't I don't think we have to capitulate to what's happening to the rest of society. But it does require a different degree of interest and responsibility when you're dealing with someone's life. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I, you know, I have been so edified this year as I've I've made these career shifts of, of meeting some true physicians. I mean, some tremendous uh, people in the profession who see the problems afoot and are working very hard, not only to provide excellent care to their patients. But to develop new institutions, you know, started founding new medical societies on Hippocratic principles, uh, founding new models of medical care that are patient centered and physician run. Uh, so there are positive developments afoot. And, you know, it's easy to get pessimistic when we look, I think, at these trends in institutional medicine and in institutional medical education. But there are other uh, maybe more quiet trends afoot as well of of doctors who are uh, striking out along new paths. And certainly there's a hunger. There's a great hunger among patients uh, to find a physician 
that they can trust, a physician that they can call their own, rather than just feeling like a, a, a widget that's run through, you know, I call it turnstile medicine, the sort of Disneyfication of medicine. You go to Disneyland and, you know, you stand in lines and they, they it's, a, it's all about people moving. The whole thing is engineered to, you know, move people through the system of, you know, rides and toileting and food and so forth. Well, you walk into a clinic or a hospital, you can sort of feel that way where you just run through this homogenized system and patients don't like that. Patients don't, patients don't like seeing a different practitioner every time they go to the clinic. And so, you know, where there's a, where there's a need and where there's people willing to provide and people eager to receive, I think there's, there's going to be creative energy. And I, I hope there are a, a lot of young medical professionals who are listening yeah. uh, who recognize that, you know, if something's going to change in a positive direction, you're the one who's going to have That's to right. do it. That's right. Uh, you can't just sit around and wait for the system to do it because the system's not going to do it. It's, it's almost a, a microcosm of the country as a whole. You know, we cannot expect our freedoms our liberties to be protected by the government yeah. because governments do what governments do. They grow, they infiltrate, and they dominate, which is the reason that our founders worked so hard to give us a constitution to protect our liberties as, as individuals. And uh, we have to recognize that, that we're the ones who are responsible. So that's the case overall. That's the case in medicine. We're the ones who have to see what the dangers are, have to react to them. And uh, in closing, I just want, I, I can't iterate enough how appreciative I am of individuals like you who are willing to stand up and take the slings and arrows because they will come. But go on and, uh, and make something even better of the situation and provide a wonderful example for the rest of us. So thank you, and may God bless you as you continue your endeavors. Thank you, Dr. Carson. Likewise, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Uh, I thank you for all the work that you've done to advance medicine and your work in, in public service as well. And, and hopefully, as you said, there's some, there's some young medical professionals out there who are listening to this and, and encouraged and emboldened to take responsibility and... Uh, and work to make things better. So appreciate the opportunity. We'll be back in one moment with our common sense prescription for this week. was a fascinating uh, discussion we had with the good doctor. But you know, the holidays are up on us now. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, time of joy and family and good memories. But remember, there are a lot of people among us, some of them are very neighbors, who are not able to enjoy much in the way of holiday cheer because they're hurting. You know, inflation is uh, at a many decades high. There's so many families who are struggling just to put food on the table. And, you know, we can't do 
too much about that, but we can do something about it. So this week for your project, find a food bank and take some non-perishables from your pantry and donate them or donate some of your time to maybe helping distribute uh, some food or maybe it's some clothing or maybe some unopened and unused toys and games. Things that can just bring cheer to those around you. I remember growing up in dire poverty and how grateful we were when people were kind to us. And, you know, we're all in the same boat, right? Our ancestors may have come here in different boats, but we're all in the same boat now. And if part of the boat sinks, the rest of it's going down too. And coming together, that's what community is all about. So important to the strength of our country. So please do your part to help a neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's what America is all about. That's it for this week. So don't forget to subscribe for free. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you'll be able to never miss an episode and see all the past episodes as well. Remember to rate us, review us, tell your friends, neighbors, family about us. We need to get everybody involved with common sense. And if you have questions or just some comments, write to me at ben at americancornerstone.org. And uh, tell me about your thoughts on today's program. Uh, We may be able to read some of them on our next podcast. And until next week treasure the cornerstones. Remember, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.